Well, we're in a uh, study on various themes in the book of Romans. I'd like to invite you to skip ahead a little bit from where we've been to chapter 12, as we uh, just take a few verses from the beginning and the middle of this chapter, and we consider the pilgrimage from faith to love that we are here called to make and understand the role of good works in our salvation. Here now, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Down to verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we might truly acceptably worship you, presenting these living sacrifices every day of this week, that you might have in us the answer to these great mercies, that they might uh, uh, truly uh, produce in us such joy, such thankfulness, such zeal, that we would truly be the people that Christ has redeemed us to be, a people zealous for good works, as it is written. We pray that you would bless these things to our soul. In Christ's name, amen. There's a quote that I find coming to my mind time and again, a quote that I have shared with you on previous occasions, and which I will do again tonight. A quote that I think well summarizes what we have learned up to this point, as well as introducing the theme of our sermon. This is from Max Mueller, the late professor of Sanskrit at Oxford University, actually of Eastern languages in general. He wrote, quote, I may say that in my 40 years fulfilling my obligations as professor of Sanskrit, I have dedicated myself to the study of the holy books of the East as much as any other person in the world. And I venture to say of this collection that I have found to be the keynote, the one agreement of all these so-called holy books of the East, whether the Veda of the Brahmins or the Puran of the Siva and Vishnu or the Quran of the Muslims and the Zendavesta of the Zoroastrians, that the keynote, the one agreement which one sees throughout all of these is that they all teach that salvation must be purchased and that the purchase price is one's own work and merit. Our own holy book from the East, our Bible, is from beginning to end a protest against this doctrine. Good works are, to be sure, required in this holy book from the East, indeed demanded more emphatically than in any other of these holy books, but... They are the only, only the outpouring of a thankful heart. They are never the ransom price of the true disciple of Christ. For Christ Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners. Well, that quote ably summarizes what we have seen so far in our study, although I don't know if I'd quite been as daring to say it so strongly, that this holy book from the East that we, that we believe in is from beginning to end a protest against salvation by works. Well, this is certainly how Paul read it. We saw in chapter 4, he considered Abraham and David as some of his prime examples. What should we say that Abraham, our father, found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Apart from works. It is the theme of the apostle in these early chapters. Only Christianity says so strongly, so forthrightly, that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to earn the salvation or grace of God, that your sins are far too great, your works too compromised, your God too holy. And so Paul put it in chapter 5, that it was when we were without strength in due time that Christ died for the ungodly that he demonstrates his own love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we were enemies when we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so we learned that it was in this letter to the Romans that Luther made this discovery, this, in so many ways, rediscovery, the clarity of the gospel of grace, something of a Damascus Road experience or his tower experience, as it was sometimes called. He wrote, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And the sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. And so on this journey, he was a new man after this discovery. He began to write and preach with such joy and vigor and effect that it was through faith and faith alone that we laid hold of Christ and are reconciled to God and liberated from our bondage to sin and our condemnation under the law. And, of course, wherever that good news is heralded, someone will raise the objection, the objection that we also take up today. In fact, Paul puts it next in his own exposition of the gospel in chapter 6 of this letter. What shall we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Or stated the other way, if we are reconciled to God by faith and faith alone, then why should we do any good works at all? Well, these objections were, of course, immediately raised to Luther. In fact, uh, his rivals accused him of casting off God's law, of antinomianism, why even Erasmus charged, quote, 
Lutherans seek two things only, wealth and wives. To them, the gospel meant the right to live as they please. Wow. Well, Luther had emphasized salvation by faith and through grace so much and denigrated fasts, pilgrimage, masses, alms, and gifts to the church that his opponents declared that he cared not whether a man only had faith and had no works. Well, he, of course, fought against this in a variety of ways, but I think it was in his preface to his commentary to Romans that he most thoughtfully and winsomely answered the challenge. And it's the topic that we come before, that comes before us now as we pick up chapter 12. I'm really going to be only looking at the first line as this transition comes, but you see it's a transition that leads into several more chapters of a godly life, of love for one's neighbor, of service to God. And so it is we'll take this first verse especially in three parts. Therefore, by the mercies of God and a living sacrifice, using Paul's words as our guide. Therefore is the first word that we take up, the second word in the original, but that's only because of the way that the Greek construction uh, is. It's definitely the theme of this transition. Paul begins this consideration of the Christian life, and he does so by saying, I beseech you, therefore. Now, if you have been Christians any length of time, if you have been even a casual reader of the New Testament, you will know immediately that what we have before us is perfectly characteristic of the Bible and of Paul's writings particularly. There are these two areas of biblical truth, doctrine and life, theology and practice, what we are to believe and how we are to live. And you so often find the connection between these two Therefore, you find it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, a very important word. Joining together God's works, which he has already done for our salvation, and our good works, the life that we are now to live in light of it. You might say that the difference between Christianity and every other religion is found in that little word, therefore. You see, as I mentioned at the beginning, the other religions and the other philosophies of mankind, even corrupt forms of Christianity, reverse the order of these things. They tell us in one way or the other that if we live the right life, then we can receive the salvation of God. They tell us that salvation is of good works, not for good works, to borrow Paul's phrase from elsewhere, and that overturns everything. Therefore, we have a new religion. Therefore, makes the difference entirely. Let Luther explain the logic. Faith is not the human notion and dream that some people call faith. Some say, I believe, and they take this then to be a true faith. But as it is a human figment and an idea that never reaches the depths of the heart, nothing comes of it either, and no improvement follows. Any kind of faith, he says, that has no therefore to it isn't true faith. Faith, however, he says, is a divine work which changes us and makes us to be born again to God. John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 3. It kills the old Adam and makes us altogether different men. 
in heart and spirit and mind and powers and brings with it the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and it is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and with his creatures. And this is the work which the Holy Spirit performs in faith. Because of it, without compulsion, the person is ready and glad to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything, out of love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. Thus, thus it is impossible to separate works from faith quite as impossible as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Beware, therefore, he writes, of your own false notions and of the idle talkers who imagine themselves wise enough to make decisions about faith and good works and yet are the greatest fools. Pray God that he may work faith in you. Otherwise, you will surely remain forever without faith, regardless of whether you may think it or do. Well, with uh, such words and many like them, he says, faith has a therefore. You, you cannot escape. Such a mighty thing is faith. It changes us root and branch. It changes our, our loves, our longings, our, our, our zeal, our energy. We are full of gladness and we, we, we simply must express the love somehow. I mean, perhaps some of you have fallen in love with a a woman, a man at a certain time, uh, it was, was there just not some way you had to express that love? Well, in uh, so much of a greater way, when God's salvation has been revealed, there must be a therefore, if we have any true faith in Christ, even as small as a mustard seed. And so it is, he begins as where we must begin in the Christian life, not doing to receive, but doing therefore, having received. Well, the second thing he mentions in our passage is the, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Um, hmm. In the Bible, God's mercies toward us are held forth as the great reason and power and motive of a godly life, joyfully offered to him. Well, what love do you know, again, that does not crave to express itself? When anyone grasps the grace of God, his or her whole life changes. And it is the greatest thing in the world to learn, as he has taught us in the previous chapters, that indeed before the foundation of the world, before people had done anything good or bad, God has cast his love on us, on me. That on that cross, Christ willingly gave himself for me. That the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, has come to me and awakened me from spiritual death. That I might forever be a child of God and an heir of Christ Jesus. To know this is to know our whole life 
in utterly different terms, spontaneously to give glory to God, and to find that our daily calling must be to honor and please the one who has shed such mercies upon us. Walter Marshall, in his uh, book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, writes, we must first receive the comforts of the gospel that we may perform the duties of the law. Whereas Luther went on to say, look, you cannot do good works as you ought to do if you do not do them in view of God's mercies. When someone grasps amazing grace that has saved a wretch like me, when we grasp it, a life is transformed. When many grasp it at the same time, the world is transformed. And this is what makes God such an exceedingly uh, great actor in, in heart and mind. His love, we see, is surpassingly wonderful. His plan and purpose, amazing and marvelous. Nothing in earth compares to such things. It makes Christ supremely beautiful. The Holy Spirit, a precious power beyond words. This is the uniqueness of our Christian faith. And in view of these mercies... Only in view of the mercies such as these are we able to live as we ought. And so it is that the Christian message, once again here, separates itself profoundly and beautifully, not only from all religions and philosophies of man, but from the heavy, duty-based religion that was increasingly common in the Middle Ages. Paul himself knew this difference personally. Before he became a Christian, he boasted in his own works. He was self-satisfied, self-righteous. According to the law, he said, blameless. But when Christ taught him that there was none good, no, not one, that his work was, in his words, rubbish or dung, not only could he not answer for his sins, he couldn't even answer for his righteousness, worthless, hollow, and heartless as it was. And that tremendous change through faith in Christ, set him on a different path altogether. And all the works that he began to do in the right manner, for the right reason, were all done in view of God's true mercies. You know, during the downgrade controversy among the Baptists in England in the days of Spurgeon, Spurgeon prophetically said that Puritan morals could never survive without a Puritan faith. Puritan morals would not last without Puritan faith how right he was. And uh, so it is that uh, morals in general will never be what they ought to be without the mercies of God first in our view. Uh, as Selden put it in the older days here, if faith be the candle, works are the light. Take away one and you cannot keep the other. But we are predestined, Paul said in chapter 8, to be conformed to the image of Christ. It is a greater thing to be made Christ-like than even to be made forgiven. And this is what God has saved you for, or will save you for, if you are not yet a Christian. For he saves people to make them like his son, to make our lives beautiful, to make us a source of goodness to others, to demonstrate his own holiness and love and redemption in our lives. Samuel Rutherford put the question a little differently. He said, should we love God more for uh, justification, the forgiveness of our sins, which 
Paul spoke about earlier, or sanctification, the transformation of our living, which he takes up now. Rutherford answered, we should love Christ more for our sanctification. Well, justification makes us happy, to be sure, but sanctification, in, in which in sanctification, Christ makes us like himself. And he says it's better to be holy than even to be happy, just as it is worse to serve sin and be a servant of the devil than simply to be condemned for guilt. Well, without getting into all the nuances of that, surely we ought to do nothing, we can do nothing, without doing it in view of God's mercies and with all the passion and determination that is fitting. Paul calls us now, in view of these mercies, to our third point, to present our bodies a living sacrifice. To present our bodies a living sacrifice. A little more explanation of the day. Christianity in the Middle Ages struggled to know which works were good and how to please God. There was a great emphasis on a number of practices we've already been considering, fasts, pilgrimages, uh, frequent attendance at masses, gifts to the church, uh, purchasing indulgences, and so forth. What were the best good works? Luther cut the Gordian knot by making this simple but profound distinction. Faith must be directed to God, and good works must be directed to our neighbors. He wrote, The Christian life does not consist of that which men as monks invent. It does not drive people into the wilderness or cloister. It is Satan who commands you to forsake men. On the contrary, the Christian life sends you to people on those that need your works. Serving one another according to your gifts, loving without hypocrisy, clinging to what is good, being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. These are the good works that God has called for, not the monkish works that take us away from the world. Here is a sample, for example, from Luther's 95 Theses. Here's number 43. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. Number 45. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy papal indulgence, but God's wrath. You see the radical change. And you see how this Reformation spirit issued in a tremendous uh, outpouring of true good works. All these things that were done in the wilderness and in the cloister were put into um, their place. And the good works that the scripture called for took center stage. Luther changed the entire direction of our good works. That for God's sake, we are now to serve our fellow men. God has no need of our good works, he said. God isn't in need. Good works are done for our neighbor. And therefore, good works should not take us out of the world. Spiritual exercises we may do, 
But monastic life, vows of celibacy, no, no, no. The gospel drives us back into the world to serve others in love. And he says, the man that that sweeps the street in your city does more to serve his neighbor than all the cloistered, uh, what does he say, The, the candles and the votives, all the other things that go on. The man that sweeps the street does a better work than all this. Luther provides a variety of analogies to describe the kind of life that he does. Just like a bishop performs the duties of a bishop because he is a bishop, not to become one. Just like a tree bears good fruit because it is a good tree and not to become a good tree. So the Christian changed by the grace of God must issue forward in a life of sacrifice and service in doing good to his fellow men for Christ's sake in view of his mercies as we have received so we now good now give. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And so it is, a call to a living sacrifice, day after day, but in view of God's mercies, that we might present these good works to God, done to our neighbor. Well, in conclusion, Luther wrote in the Freedom of a Christian, 1520, our faith in Christ doesn't free us from works but from false opinions concerning works, that is, from foolish presumptions, that justification may be acquired by works. You must gain gospel clarity and maintain a clear head because, as I say, in our interfaith American experience where all religions are mixed together and we want to be charitable toward those of different persuasions, well, beware the downgrade that makes salvation a creeping work of man's accomplishment. Our works can't do anything. We must start on the basis of faith and faith alone. And then, having, uh, having such a view of God's mercies, then we are able to do the works that God requires for our fellow men in the right way. Well, true religion is not of works, but for good works. Paul wrote elsewhere, And no religion as ours ever laid man so low as to make him utterly dependent upon the grace of God, as we find in this book. Paul has rested our entire salvation in God, the Father setting his love upon his chosen and predestined people, Christ redeeming us and winning our deliverance from sin and death by the cross, the Holy Spirit bringing us into actual possession of this great gift, by working faith in our hearts. And the reason that Paul has had to make so much of God's grace for 11 chapters before now turning to this matter of the practical life is to emphasize that salvation is of the Lord. The path to everlasting life is found in the knowledge of God and no life worthy of the name of Christian can be lived unless it is therefore in view of God's mercies. Let us pray together. Our Father, we come to your table. We pray that you would once again bless this knowledge, this tremendous encouraging knowledge to us, that you are the author of all of our good, that all that we are able to do in view of your mercies for our neighbor is only the receipt of those works that you yourself having given. We pray that you would be pleased, therefore, to receive us ourselves, our living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, and sanctify us for your service this week. We would be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by such a renewing of our mind 
that now we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of our God. May the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that animates us for our every work be present in this table to every soul.